And our gospel reading today from John's Gospel, chapter 21. This is the conclusion of, uh, of John's great gospel. John 21, uh, reading verses 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of uh, Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray again together. God, our Father, we thank you for your most holy word. We recognize its authority and submit to it. And now with your spirit present, we ask that you would be our teacher for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, our text uh, this afternoon is about two things. It's about breakfast and it's about the manifestation of Jesus. In fact, in verse one, uh, where uh, John tells us that Jesus revealed himself by the Sea of Tiberias, that is the lake or the, the Sea of Galilee, he uses the Greek word phanerosin for reveal, which comes from the verb phanerao, uh, to make known, which is lexically linked to epiphino, to give light, which is where we get the Greek word or the word epiphany, meaning the appearance of Jesus. All that to say, what we have here today in this text is truly breakfast at Epiphanies. And at the risk of linking this narrative to a film that has nothing whatsoever to do with this text, I hope that you'll remember that a morning meal and the revelation of Christ are importantly linked together by the Apostle. Well, even though our text today has no explicit teaching from the Lord, this is one of those stories that 
uh, has unique applicability to us. Even though it predates Pentecost, an event that all true believers have a true participation in, even so, I think it's the case that we often find ourselves by the Sea of Tiberias. Somewhat puzzled by the lack of movement in our lives, and wondering what it is that we should be doing. Not understanding our place. Not understanding our role. Not understanding the seeming distance and quietness from the Lord in our day-to-day routine. We know from the first chapter of Acts that the disciples were both ignorant and they were impatient towards the coming of the Lord's kingdom. He's risen from the dead, He's bested all the powers that stood against us. He's crushed the serpent under his foot, and yet nothing seems to be happening, they say. Lord, is now this the time that you'll establish your kingdom? The apostles don't understand the lack of movement. And here in John chapter 21, they're in the same place. They're not doubting that Jesus is the victor. (laughs) They know he's risen from the dead. They know now that neither the Jews nor the Romans can defeat his purpose. They believe now that he is indeed the Son of God. But not doubting Christ, they struggle with what they're supposed to be doing. And I don't want to be too demanding here with this passage, but if we dismiss the applicability of John 21 to our experience because we live in the light of Pentecost, then I think that we're missing something very, very important. In some real sense, this comes to us as a parable for our whole lives because we will routinely find ourselves in that position. We know that the Lord's resurrected. We know that he's defeated all these powers that stand against us. We know that he's the victorious one, and yet we don't understand where we are or where we're to go. We can't figure out the seeming motionlessness, the inertia of our lives, and we're puzzled by the apparent lack of kingdom success and excitement and drama. And so this narrative today comes to all those who struggle with these perplexities. Peter, not knowing what to do, he simply says, I'm going fishing. And if you listen closely enough to his voice, you can hear the exasperation in Peter. He's not doing wrong, As some might say, he's not going back on his word to the Lord. He's not going back on those nets that he's abandoned and rejecting his call to be disciple. Peter's simply filling his time here. He's doing something productive. He's working with his hands. And I think at least in this, we should commend Peter for filling up his time. But now the Lord's going to use this moment to teach his disciples once again something very needful for them to hear. Next week, as we continue this passage, we're going to hear very hard words of the Lord to Peter, very demanding words, very haunting words. But in our passage today, the Lord communicates something different. The disciples think they're ready for the kingdom building. They think they're ready, but they're not. They're impatient with the inactivity. They're eager to get on with this kingdom business, the program, but the Lord now has to slow them down in order to speak with them and to instruct them and to remind them of some important lessons. And the first lesson has to do with the catch of fish. Jesus is giving them a picture that they're not easily going to forget. All night they toil, 
In fact, Peter's been working so hard that he's nearly naked. He's in his underwear. He's, he's been sweating all night. He's been stripping off his, his clothes, we read. And working all night or working for any period of time with getting nowhere is its own kind of hell. It's like Sisyphus rolling that stone up the hill only to see it going back all those arduous steps that he's made up that ascent. It wasn't long ago that I was trying to fix a ceiling in our basement that had been uh, improperly uh, finished. And I was working with drywall and with a sander and with mud and a trowel. And I, I troweled and I sanded and I troweled and I sanded. And every time I did it, it got worse. I was digging myself into a big heap of worse and worse and worse and working with getting nowhere. I could feel the flicker of hellfire on my heels. It's very, very painful to see your work get nowhere. But now with one word, the futility is going to change to fruitfulness. Jesus, he's still a stranger on the shore. They don't recognize who he is. He commands the disciples to, to fling the nets to the other side of the boat. And in a moment, futility changes to a, a net teeming with fish. Now, it's important to note that the absence of fish is as miraculous as the catch itself. The span of the boat isn't very big. Jesus deliberately is the Lord of creation. He moves the fish away from the nets as much as he moves them towards them. That is, Jesus deliberately makes these men to feel their futility. He requires them to feel their useless toil and their, fruitful, their fruitlessness so that... When the blessing comes, they will know it comes from the Lord. And this is exactly John's perception. As soon as John sees the great catch, he says immediately, he exclaims, Peter, it's the Lord. This is the Lord. You see, the experience of dearth gives rise to the right acknowledgement of fullness. And hard as it may be, we shouldn't begrudge the Lord for educating us in like manner. He leads us through poverty of many kinds in order that when his blessing comes, we'll ascribe it to him alone. It's that important to him. The apostles were headed for some heady things. The apostles were about to see thousands of people added to the Lord. Incredible miracles. The whole Roman Empire turned upside down. The kingdom of God indeed was going to come. And Jesus needed to teach his disciples that it wasn't them that was bringing in such a great catch that apart from him, they could do nothing. If we were always prosperous, Calvin writes, Whenever we put our hand to labor, we would boast of our own success and we would kiss our own hands. So the Lord brings these disciples through dearth, inactivity, motionlessness, perplexity, fruitless toil, and disappointment so that they can one day and soon ascribe the bounty and success and prosperity to the goodness of the Lord so that they can say always with John, it's the Lord who's doing these things. And brothers and sisters, this is where we need to be. We need to be here as individuals and we need to be here as a church that when the blessings begin to fall, we automatically say with John, it's the Lord. 
And none of us is tempted to kiss our own hand in any way. The second lesson has to do with breakfast. You'd think now that they've learned the lesson of the fish, which is essentially, essentially Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, uh, who, who build it labor in vain. You'd think now that they've learned this, that they're ready to go. Okay, you know, okay, boys, we've got it. Human effort leads to poverty. Divine effort at the helm leads to fruit. We've got it. We labor in vain unless it's your work. Oh, Lord, they say, without you, we are nothing. Well, what's the plan, Master? What are the marching orders, Master? And Jesus is going to share part of that plan to Peter, as we'll see next week, but not before breakfast. When they get to shore, Jesus has already started a meal for them. There's a charcoal fire and fish roasting with some bread there. And just think of the context here. It's the cool of day. The sun is just beginning to, to break over the horizon. There's a crackle of fire. There's a warm glow. There's a smell of roasted meal. It just bespeaks comfort in this, uh, in this setting. And Jesus now invites them to add some of their own catch to the fire, some of that 153 fish. Now, there's no mystical meaning to the number. <laughs> it's tempting, isn't it, to go full allegorical here when we read that number? Augustine, in his homilies in the Gospel of John, he sees the number 153 as the harmony of law and gospel. He writes, if you take the number 17, 10 for the commandments, and seven for the Spirit. Augustine has a very uh, profound theology of the septenary, the sevenfold work of uh, grace, especially as it's linked to the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit in Isaiah chapter uh, 11. If you take 10, which is the law, and you add seven, which is the gifts of the Spirit, and then you add each number to the next, one plus two plus three plus four, all the way to 17, Augustine says you've got 153. <laughs> and so what the number signifies, Augustine says, is the functional harmony of law and gospel. And so he writes, through the life-giving spirit, the letter no longer kills, but what is commanded by the letter is fulfilled by the help of the spirit. It's very clever, isn't it? Augustine's very clever, I like Augustine. But I don't think that's what John is after here. Rather, the specificity of the catch, the 153, renders the story more believable as an historical account. As good fishermen, they counted their fish. And John just happened to remember the number. It stuck with him. That's it. But perhaps more importantly, the 153 speaks of this idea of bounty. Jesus invites them in to this comforting breakfast where no one wants for anything. There's more than enough, and they're fed in his presence. The whole scene speaks comfort, it speaks nourishment, it speaks cheer, it speaks relief after a long, hard night. And this breakfast, this leisurely fellowship with the Lord precedes the marching orders of verses 15 to 19, and the breakfast precedes the dramatic events of Acts chapter 1 and beyond. You see, the fellowship comes first. The leisure with the Lord comes first. 
the leisure and the fellowship comes before the campaign. Before Jesus tells them what to do, and before Jesus tells them who to be, especially Peter, Jesus simply says to his disciples, come, have breakfast with me. I think that we easily underestimate the value of this fellowship with Jesus. It's very easy as a believer to get caught in the, ma- the mindset of campaign, the mindset of strategy, logistics, mission, intercession, of fighting the good fight, receiving marching orders from Jesus, being about the kingdom's business, all very good and important things, but we can lose sight of this leisurely and comforting fellowship with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it is very easy to lose sight of the goodness of just being near the Lord and the compelling warmness and goodness of his invitation just to be near him. It is good for me to draw near to God, writes the psalmist. And that's the point here. It is good for these disciples just to have breakfast with the Lord, to experience the cheer and the goodness and the warmth of his presence. And it is good for us simply to draw near to God and to be with him, to share our sorrows, to express our hopes to him, to spell out our fears, to quiet our hearts, and to recognize with ever-increasing acuteness that when we draw near to God, in truth, he draws near to us that the Christ of the breakfast fire is with us. Indeed. And so we say to our souls in these moments, O Lord, you, the Christ of the breakfast fire, are here. And just being in his company is enough. And we'll go on to intercede, and we'll go on to study, and we'll go on to plan and to fight. But this fellowship, this closeness with the living Christ, this comes first, and it's the basis of everything else that we'll do in his kingdom. The fellowship of the fire gives meaning to the fight. The meal will give meaning to the mission. And brothers and sisters, just like with our physical lives, if we skip breakfast, we'll find a consequent hollowness and a weakness to everything that we do. And so God grant us grace today, each of us, to recognize these two lessons and to see the grace of God over our lives, that the disappointment, the frustration, the perplexity, and the fruitless toil is preparatory to the blessing. God wants us to recognize his hand. He wants us to say with John, it's the Lord when the blessing falls. And God help us to answer his invitation to the table. Beloved, Jesus wants to be near us. He stands at the door, not of the unbeliever. Jesus does not stand at the door of the unbeliever. He stands at the door of the church and he knocks And he says, whoever hears and opens the door, he will come in and he will share a meal with that person. And so, Lord, help us to do these things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.